Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Human Rights, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicholas Becklin, a visiting scholar at Yale Law School and the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Don Selby about his new book, Human Rights in Thailand, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018. Human rights in Thailand is an anthropological study of human rights. That is, it's preoccupied with practices, discourses, meanings that social actors derive from uh, the term and the idea. Uh, the book uh, is very rich and offers important insights into the vernacularization of the idea of human rights in Thailand something that has a lot of resonance in uh, today's Thailand, which, as we know, is under yet another attempt by the military to order Thai society through an imposition of a top-down model uh, and one that is uh, fairly inimical, to say the least, to human rights. So an important book uh, and a great opportunity to uh, talk about Thailand. Don Selby, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Don, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I, I grew up in Canada, in Toronto, and uh, so I studied at a, a small university not far from Toronto called Trent University, where I got a degree in development studies. And then from there went on to uh, McGill to do an MA in communication studies. And while, uh, while I was moving uh, from the one to the other, uh, I became uh, familiar a little bit with some of the work of Vina Das, who at that time was at the New School for Social Research in New York. So I uh, applied and happily got into the anthropology program there. Uh, in order to study under her. And a couple of years into my studies, 
she moved to Johns Hopkins, so I, I followed her there and wound up doing my PhD at Johns Hopkins, as you uh, indicate, on human rights in Thailand. Great. So um, how did you come to write uh, the book? Is it coming from your uh, dissertation or um, is that a later endeavor? It's primarily from my dissertation fieldwork, yes. So uh, the the dissertation fieldwork spanned, spanned um, from around 2002 to 2005, with the bulk of that work happening over 2004-2005. And um, the, I, I guess the, the impulse behind it was uh, two or, or threefold. When I, had, when I was 19, uh, I went on a youth exchange to Thailand called Kanda World Youth. And so I, I had spent several months in rural Thailand uh, and so when I was thinking about where I wanted to do field work for my dissertation, uh, Thailand seemed like sort of a natural choice. I, I had some exposure to the language. I had uh, some exposure to Thai people and, and the country. And so it seemed like a sensible, uh, a sensible place to pick. And uh, I had become interested in doing something on human rights because uh, through the course of my graduate studies, uh, especially before I got to uh, the new school and, and then to Johns Hopkins, human rights had, be, had gotten onto my sort of intellectual radar, but I found many of the, uh, I guess, conceptualizations of human rights and much of the scholarship on human rights left me ill at ease. And uh, I think there were a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one was that the, the, the prevalent debate, at least as it appeared in anthropology, between universalism and cultural relativism just seemed to me to, to be a logjam. That for for whatever move one side would make, the other side would have a corresponding move to to block that line of thinking, and uh, and so there was there was something in that that left me, uh, as I say, just dissatisfied. And so from there, I I thought, well, what would a different way of studying human rights look like, and does anthropology offer such a thing? So that's sort of where the dissertation research started. And, uh, and I, I wanted to think about what an anthropological project of studying human rights would look like. And so then I got on much more onto the idea of shifting focus away from the kind of abstract questions of what human rights are as uh, uh, an entity unto themselves and much more interested in thinking about what human rights look like through the lens of, say, agency, through the lens of social actors, uh, through the specific and concrete ways that people employ human rights in, um, in the, the circumstances in which they live. 
So, um, so sort of a shift, in other words, to attending to uh, social relations and agency in the way that human rights uh, become manifest within those rather than human rights as, uh, say, more of an abstract philosophical entity. And uh, so then the, the last point that I'll make is that my dissertation research, as I say, ended in 2005. Um, the political climate of Thailand, of course, changed dramatically uh, within just a few months of my uh, wrapping up my fieldwork. And so that's why you get the, the final chapter in the book on the return to coup politics. That is um, something that I, I felt I had to include to acknowledge that passage of time and the changing situation, but that is not so ethnographically grounded. Right. Well, you, you can never go wrong when you, you write a chapter about Thailand, which is uh, titled The Return of Coup Politics. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the anthropological uh, take on, on human rights in Thailand um, is, is very interesting because there is you know, a dominant idea, which is that you have human rights as these international norms, a legal order, um, and then you have sort of countries sort of taking up these uh, more modern ideas and trying to sort of catch up with with modernity and and proper governance, right. and uh, and and everything is measured in terms of gaps. Right? They they here are the norms, and here is the country sort of trying to catch up with that. And we, um, we look at the, uh, the achievements and the failings, but the, the approach that you've taken is much more interested in, um, our actors are appropriating, uh, the idea of, of, of human rights and, um, and, and making it, inscribing it in their own, social, religious, political practices. Is that a more fertile approach than the, the classic political or legal approach to human rights to understand Thailand? I, I think for, yeah, for Thailand. So I think that, yeah, if you want to look at how people are employing human rights, uh, wherever you might be searching, um, this is an approach the, the anthropological approach that is, that will allow you to uh, understand, I think, what's at stake for people, not just in terms of what human rights can do for them, but how they're going to articulate human rights with their own sensibilities about, say, ethics, morality, religious dispositions, uh, political inheritances and, and so forth. And so I, I think that uh, if, if people say in political science uh, want to have discussions about human rights that are not connected in that way to specific practices, then, then that, that's fine. They're of course perfectly entitled to have those conversations. They're just going to be different conversations than the ones that you would get taking an anthropological approach. And, and I just think if you want to 
be attentive to the specificity of human rights practices in any particular place uh, or the specificity of human rights issues, uh, however you want to approach it, then uh, ethnography has something to offer there that the more, uh, let's say, abstract discussions uh, don't. Yeah, I very much uh, agree with that. And one of the area that you look at that um, really gives a, a very rich description and insights about how human rights ideas are articulated in Thailand is, is the chapter you write about um, the debates about um, socially engaged Buddhism and, and, and Buddhist morality in Thailand. Um, and how they they predate uh, the sort of introduction or emergence of human rights in the, in the, in the, in Thailand. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, about this and and how you researched it? Sure. Uh, so I think it, it's worth noting that uh, Buddhism has never been just a singular thing in Thailand. That there have always been multiple schools, uh, multiple practices, uh, multiple uh, approaches to thinking about the relationship between uh, doctrine and practice. And so so it has been a, a more or less contested field f- uh, forever. Um, and in particular, when you think of it, or when when practitioners think of it in relationship to kingship, it is uh, still more contested, and and the stakes become um, more politically significant. So when I uh, when I was thinking about the the place of Buddhism in relationship to human rights. Um, one of the things that really guided me with that was my exposure to uh, Kuning Ampon, who was one of the commissioners at the time. Now, I, I was fortunate that uh, through my time in, uh, in Kanda World Youth in Thailand, I had still maintained contact with uh, a, a member of the bureaucracy who was fairly high-ranking Uh, at the time, and uh, who had just recently retired when I got there, who knew Kuning Ampon. And so she put me in contact with her, which was um, uh, ridiculously good luck for me. And so she, uh, Kuning Ampon, that is, uh, from, I I think the first interview that I had with her uh, broached the topic of Buddhism and human rights and the way that th- that human rights were, in her view, imminent in Buddhism. They were already embedded there, already available, uh, albeit in a kind of nascent way, because um, what uh, she took to be, uh, let's say, Buddhist human rights were, were not named human rights as such, so that there was a, a, a certain kind of supplementarity to the introduction of human rights as uh, an identifiable, nameable concept that 
that she would find um, emerging out of Buddhism, uh, but that 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 benefited from this addition of having a specified name for it. That that this this captures something that uh, is available in Buddhism, but had not previously been named as such. And uh, so, so that there is uh, not just a, a one directional uh, relationship of the one informing the other, but that there's a kind of mutuality uh, between the two. So from there, I, I learned that the commissioner, uh, Sene Jamarek, had published uh, quite, quite some time earlier, in fact, uh, a very small book on human rights in Buddhism, and then later had co-authored with Kunying Ampon a book on uh, human rights in Thai society that spoke to the, the place of Buddhism as well. And uh, it became clear to me as I was reading through their work and as I was uh, speaking with her that the, the way that they were thinking about Buddhism was not the... Uh, let's say the the dominant strain of Buddhism that you would find most people talking about, most people um, identifying as Buddhism in, uh, say, mainstream society. So, the the more mainstream view would be one in which uh, you engage in good acts to accumulate good merit. Uh, boon in in Thai, and to um, to aspire to a better life, uh, probably in your next incarnation. Um, there there are some schools of thought that would think of it as being able to accumulate merit that would benefit you in this life, uh, and others that would think of it as benefiting you in the next life, and that the way that that benefit would become visible would be in the degree of comfort and power in your life. So the corollary of this, of course, is that people who are rich and powerful uh, are so um, not because of, say, economic forces, but because of the forces of something like karma. And therefore, they, in a sense, deserve their positions, just as those people who have more suffering in their lives uh, who people who are poor, uh, people who experience misfortune or what have you, uh, deserve what they get as well on the strength of the quality of of uh, karma that they've accumulated in their pasts. And so, on that view, you wind up with uh, a defense of stratified society that is not hedged simply in political terms, although it has those political implications, but is hedged in moral terms, that that there's a notion of desert in your lot in life. And this also then leads to the development and, again, the um, justification of patron-client relationships, uh, such that those who are in more meager, impoverished, um, uh, say, anguish-laden circumstances, 
would do well to attach themselves to people who have a greater store of merit uh, and are uh, richer and more powerful, let's say, in this world. And and that that again, you that leads to um, important aspects of the structure of Thai society and the presumption that inequality is this just kind of natural expression of karma. Now, obviously, um, it struck me that these are not things that jibe well with uh, human rights principles uh, as I understood them. And it turned out that they didn't jibe well with human rights principles or indeed Buddhist principles as people like uh, Kuning Ampon and Sene understood Buddhism as well. And I, I think that that's largely because they adhered to a different school of Buddhism, one heavily informed by the teachings and, um, and then the, the monks who came up under this figure, Buddhadasa. So, or Buddhatat in, um, I guess, would be the, the more proper uh, Thai pronunciation. In any case, his view was uh, kind of an outlier, but it was rigorously faithful to Buddhist doctrine. So although he he was not um, an adherent to the kind of central uh, teachings of the, the Thai Sangha, he nonetheless uh, was in a way um, in, a, in a protected position with respect to the Sangha. So he, he couldn't be defrocked, in other words, even though his teachings were somewhat idiosyncratic because he was so faithful to scripture. And so the difference in orientation that seemed relevant in the work of Kuning Ampon and of Sene and uh, of the way that some other human rights lawyers enacted their human rights work was an orientation not to the accumulation of merit with all of the social consequences emerging from that around inequality, but an orientation to the achievement of nirvana. And in Buddhadasa's work, there's a, a conviction, first of all, that our original state, say as, as infants, is one of nirvana. And that uh, it is therefore in principle attainable equally to anybody at any time. Now, you have to do the right things like meditation and so forth in order to be able to attain it. It doesn't just happen. But nonetheless, there is, in his view then, this kind of uh, radical egalitarianism that arises out of that way of thinking of the teachings of the Buddha. And uh, and, and indeed, um, th- this, is, this is sort of a, a puzzle to which he offers a kind of solution. The puzzle is that as long as you're pursuing merit, you can't achieve uh, nirvana. Nirvana is the extinguishing of karma. And so as long as you're trying to gain better and better karma, there's a way that you are committing yourself to remaining in the cycle of rebirths. Whereas 
if your orientation is to the achievement of nirvana, you're orienting yourself to the extinction of your karma and uh, and and therefore the the escape of rebirths and that these are just um, uh, they're 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 different ways of understanding Buddhist scripture that therefore lead to different um, different imaginations of what social relations can look like and so from Buddha Dasa you get these much more egalitarian notions and. Um, so you get that on the one side and that so that I think becomes the prevalent strain of Buddhist thinking within the Human Rights Commission for example um, and but of course not exclusively there Buddha Dasa had uh, quite a, a significant following in spite of the idiosyncras- idiosyncrasies of his teachings and um, and and a lot of that following would have been um, and probably still is sort of professionals, uh, upper middle class uh, people, um, so that there's there's a way that hedging human rights as Buddhist in those terms has a kind of familiarity to people and and has a very strong appeal to some sectors of Thai society so that human rights in that way, as, as Buddhist in that way, have a kind of familiarity to them that they don't when you simply talk about them uh, among Thai people in, in the sort of discourses that are available internationally, that they, they just don't have the same traction that way. But there's a way then that, framing them in terms of these particular kinds of Buddhist principles lends them a kind of familiarity that gives them some force in in Thai society, or at least it gave them some force at that time. It made them, in some sense, uh, recognizable. Not, I wouldn't say transparent, but it made them recognizable uh, in a in a way that, as I say, that just drawing on kind of international discourses of human rights would not have done. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off go, go right. ahead go ahead yeah no right i mean it's um it it's it is so obvious that buddhism and and religious practices are so pregnant in thai society um that 
um, you somehow need a way to reconcile the egalitarian values of human rights with um, aspects of, of, of Buddhism that, uh, that support it. Um, and that, that, that discussion in the book is, um, is, uh, is really um, interesting. Um, and there is another field in which um, egalitarian notions are being uh, sort of pushed forcefully into a field that is not necessarily egalitarian, uh, which is politics, which right. is the, the, the focus of your second chapter. And um, it's a fascinating discussion about the evolution of the, the student members of the um, Communist Party of Thailand and their um, evolution after the amnesty uh, into um, uh, bureaucrats and, and uh, right. health, <laughs> health, health bureaucrats. Can you, can you tell us a, a bit about, about this and, and the significance um, of... Um, of this uh, phenomenon in in uh, in Thailand. Yeah, um, I'll do it by way of uh, uh, an important part of the discussion around Buddhism that I I kind of skipped over, but that's salient here as well. And that is in the the seventies, there was. Um, first of all, a, a large scale. Uh, reaction to the uh, authoritarian government in uh, the early 70s that wound up leading to its ouster. And so the main um, uh, political figures of that moment went into exile. And there, and so the democracy movement that, that really thought of itself as a democracy movement proper, uh, that organized their ouster, that took to the streets that um, uh, suffered deaths at the the hands of the military um, they they took a position in the uh, sort of if you will imaginaire the the, the kind of um, uh, sensibility about who are the heroes of the moment um, within Thai society such that they could push a very progressive egalitarian, um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily um, communist or Marxist, but, but in, in some sense leftist uh, political agenda. And so for, for a few years, there, there was democratic government governance. There was uh, a real sense that the opportunity to displace the kind of authoritarian bent in Thai politics was it, it, that it was a real possibility and that it, it had a future to it. And, and, and that persisted for uh, about three years. And then in 1976, uh, two of the previous military leaders were uh, planning their return to Thailand. And during that three-year period, and part of the reason that they felt that they could return, the sort of reactionary right wing um, 
organized itself. And it organized itself not just in the military, but also in paramilitary organizations. And uh, one of the ways that it gained some uh, really significant force was through the figure of uh, this monk, Kitibuto, who, uh, who, who defended in the most stark possible terms and in the most public possible way the killing of leftists. And he didn't isolate it just to um, people who identified as communist, but he said leftists. To kill leftists it will bring you merit. To kill leftists protects the, the nation, the king, and Buddhism. So it's our obligation as good Thai Buddhists to kill leftists. And uh, he tried to retreat from this in some in some cases to say, oh, no, I just mean killing an ideology. Uh, but then in other cases, it was quite clear that he meant, no, actually an ideology uh, manifest in human bodies, kill them too. And, uh, and so this was a moment then that Buddha Dasa was also producing his quite different uh, understanding of Buddhism, one that was not predisposed to uh, political assassination, for example. And it was also then the moment when many of the future uh, commissioners um, or members of the commission, many of the future uh, bureaucrats who would work on the, the, the bureaucratic side of the commission um, were cutting their political teeth either as students or as uh, professors in some cases, depending on the generation. So that when large-scale student demonstrations broke out in 1976 at Damasat University in, uh, in Bangkok, uh, these, these future members of the Human Rights Commission and of the bureaucracy and, and of the Ministry of Public Health, which I'll, I'll get back to in a moment, um, they were witness to the way that Buddhism could be mobilized as a justification for killing people whose uh, political opinions differed from your own. And they were witness to the, the way that that actually took effect when students were killed in, um, in the hundreds in uh, Tamasite University. And, um, and, and in, in the most gruesome ways, uh, at the hands of these right-wing organizations that, as I say, had been organizing themselves in the intervening three years. So that their egalitarian predispositions were formed, I, I'd say, um, not just from their exposure to the kind of Buddhism that Buddha Dasa was promoting, not just from the... Uh, the, the presence of uh, the, um, the Communist Party of Thailand, which many people feel was, was really significantly organized by the Chinese Communist Party, um, but that had a presence on university campuses in any case. So it wasn't just formed by one or the other, but it was formed by this kind of confluence of these two different um, schools of, of thinking. 
So the result was after the massacre of students at Tamasat, uh, many students uh, took to the jungles to fight as members of the Communist Party of Thailand. And, um, and that prompted uh, a number of different responses from the Thai government, probably the most significant of which, though, was to offer amnesty at a particular time. Uh, the, the military ventures of the Communist Party had not, had not really gained a whole lot of uh, success. They, they, they had success here and there, but on the whole, through the end of the 70s and early 80s, um, they hadn't swept up large tracts of the country and folded them into their their influence or persuaded uh, a large proportion of the the Thai population that uh, that they ought to be um, committed to the Communist Party, and uh, and and yet they were a significant enough threat that the government undertook this um, project of offering amnesty rather than continuing to engage. In military combat with them, and uh, to a surprising degree, I think for everybody concerned, the amnesty really took. There were lots and lots of people who uh, abandoned the Communist Party, uh, abandoned the jungle, and sort of came back, so to speak, into the fold of Thai society. What this spurred, though, was a different way of doing politics for them. And so you you get this just dramatic proliferation of non-governmental organizations where, so that all of the energy that these uh, former students and former guerrillas had previously put into uh, a military venture, now they had redirected that into the the sort of burgeoning NGO movement, and so you you don't get from that something that looks like the promotion of human rights, but you what you do get is um, many projects to promote specific kinds of social interests um, around uh, around all sorts of things, alleviating rural poverty. Um, around HIV AIDS education and treatment uh, and prevention. Um, so, so all sorts of different projects, uh, all of which could in some way be seen later to have some salience for the promotion of human rights, but in and of themselves were more kind of um, uh, fragmented or, or fractured in that way. So, the other thing that was interesting, as you pointed out, is that the Ministry of Public Health, really uniquely among Thai, uh, agencies within the Thai bureaucracy, was quite welcoming to former um, medical students, for example, who had gone off to fight and now had returned and were reintegrating themselves into Thai society. Uh, and uh, who wanted a place within the medical world in Thailand. And the Ministry of Public Health was open to them. 
And um, there, there are various reasons that have to do not simply with goodwill, uh, but have to do with the, the way that um, the, the ministry was charged with uh, situating medical students in, um, in hospitals around the country and, and uh, things like that. So some of it was just the bureaucratic organization of the ministry, but some of it was also a, a kind of openness to more left-ish politics than other um, other ministries were, and so through the Ministry of Public Health, you also you get this convergence of uh, uh, a bureaucracy on the one hand, um, medically trained personnel on the other hand, so, and and so therefore people some of whom were greatly interested in the health and well-being of Thai people in general, uh, and so had that kind of um, disposition that was also informed by a kind of egalitarian politics that they had picked up as students. Um, so you have the, this confluence of these different kinds of forces within the ministry and then the last step is that uh, the first uh, secretary of the or secretary general of the hum, National Human Rights Commission. So the, the guy in charge of the bureaucracy, not in, in charge of the commission, but in charge of the, the bureaucracy that plays the supporting role for the commission, came from the Ministry of Public Health. And so there were important ways in which his view of how to approach human rights was informed by this sort of broader kind of egalitarian ethos organized around the idea of providing service for the well-being of Thai people in general. And so he, he brought that with him into the commission. And when he drew up the initial five-year plan for the commission. Uh, it was really strongly organized around ideas of trying to prevent human rights abuses before they happen. So this kind of preventative model that he had inherited from the Ministry of Public Health, um, much more strongly than one that was built on the kind of legalistic model of um, uh, like a winner-take-all uh, courtroom scenario. Now the so the so so that that gets us to the Ministry of Public Health. One of the things that's really significant, though, is that the way that the heritage of democratic struggle figures in uh, the sort of the the broad Thai imagination of itself, of how, how Thai people imagine their country, is that the protesters of 1973 uh, were, were really held up as heroes and continue to be held up as heroes. Those in 1976 uh, have not been. And uh, so it's complicated to understand why exactly that is. Uh, it, it could be that it was because it was a more explicitly um, Marxist-inspired protest. Um, it could be that 
it's uh, simply that the protesters in 1973, in a sense, won. Uh, the protesters in 1976, in a sense, lost. They got displaced. Uh, democracy was wrapped up for the foreseeable future, and there was a return to military governance. Uh, so, um, so they they just haven't been written into Thai history in the same way the protesters of nineteen seventy three have been, nor have they had the same kind of uh, accolades as the democracy movement in the early 1990s had. Now, again, the democracy movement in the early 1990s was um, in, in, if you can think of it in these terms, they were successful in that they brought an end to a military government. Their protests succeeded in reestablishing democratic governance. And, um, and, but also they might, those protesters might have had a different kind of po- uh, public profile because there is th- they were called uh, at one point the um, the the Murta movement, so the like the mobile phone movement. So there is a sense that these were uh, professionals. There were doctors out there. There were lawyers out there who were mm-hmm. agitating on behalf of democracy. So there's there's a way that they might also have had just a different kind of palatability for uh, the public at large. But one of the things that I argue in the book is that the the work of the Human Rights Commission, I think, was um, I think fairly clearly trying to rehabilitate the 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 much uh, the, the very strong egalitarian impulse of the 1976 protesters that was not just about the restoration of democracy, but was also about trying to promote a more egalitarian society. And uh, so their effort to recuperate that moment, uh, I think, also imbued the the projects and the self-identity of the Human Rights Commission with this kind of egalitarianism that is not, it's not just intrinsic to democracy that it's going to be egalitarian. And so this is another element that they brought with them into the promotion of human rights and their way both of claiming 1976 as part of their heritage and of trying to restore the, the dignity of the 1976 democracy movement. Right. So having having set up the this sort of background in the in the first part of the book, uh, which very much dispelled the idea that human rights was sort of an um, alien spaceship that had right. landed in, in in Thailand, but in fact had a, a very deep um, deep roots in 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 the in the imagination of, uh, of, of Thai society. Um, you, you, you then turn to how human rights are uh, articulated in the Thai context. Um, and this is something that, you know, I've, I found quite fascinating. 
um, because it gave me another reading on my own interaction as the representative of Amnesty in Thailand with the various parts of the bureaucracy, um, the special branch, the military intelligence, the mm-hmm. ministries, and so on. And I, I realized that um, you know, a, a good deal of my work was actually what you call face work. Right. Uh, right. It was about reading uh, my interlocutors, um, taking social clues from their social background, from their um, uh, hierarchy, uh, from their relations to other uh, institutions, and and engaging with this because not engaging with this would. Um, lead uh, nowhere. And this is also true for the work that we were doing with domestic organizations or um, uh, lawyers or or, uh, activists that you, even though they're often sort of um, um, uh, not outcast, but uh, somehow um, um, stand out in, in Thai societies for their activism and outspokenness and so on. But nonetheless, they they know the script, they know the right. social script, and even when they deviate from it, they uh, often have to explain to you what what, what is happening. Um, and um, and you you have a lot of of these details uh, in uh, in in your book. Um, but do, do you want to talk a little bit uh, about um, how how human rights being uh, sort of articulated in, in Thai society has to go through these um, existing channels of patronage and face work and, um, and, and sometimes the reversal of, of social hierarchies uh, to, uh, to achieve certain social results? Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of one of the uh, kind of paradoxes, uh, maybe it's not a paradox, but it, it can seem like a paradox, is that on the one side you have all of these uh, egalitarian impulses that I'm I'm claiming are present in the Human Rights Commission, or at least in the in the first tranche of the Human Rights Commission. Uh, but on the other hand, um, the work that lawyers do. The human rights lawyers do. Uh, it still participates in uh, Thai society as it is, not as they would aspire for it to be, and so that means dealing with the uh, issues of face or of face work, as as Goffman calls it, um, of uh, recognizing that people exist within patronage networks. Uh, and patronage relations. And so um, having to always be attentive to those things. And uh, the so the curiosity in some of the cases is that they the, the lawyers who I was accompanying at that time, who had gone to Southern Thailand after the tsunami hit to, to do work, primarily with Burmese migrants uh, who were extraordinarily vulnerable at that time, that they, of course, were entirely attuned to face work and uh, to the implications of patronage. Um, And and so whatever their sorts of uh, political leanings, uh, they they worked 
within the society as they understood it. And what they what they found, uh, or or what they wound up doing, in some cases, was turning that system so that those who were most vulnerable, who who I argue were Burmese migrants, I think that they have a unique vulnerability within Thai society, um, largely because of the history of animosity between Thai and Burmese kingdoms historically. Um, so they have a great deal of vulnerability to uh, human trafficking in particular. That that was the thing that came up over and over as the prevailing fear that um, migrants who whether they were working there with all the, all of the legal documentation or not, that was the thing that worried them. And so they, I say, were the most vulnerable uh, people within Thailand. And, uh, and, and so there was a sense in which they, you could say, didn't have enough face to lose in the first place. Whereas police officers and officials, uh, they had enough face to lose and it was that uh, that position of having enough face to lose that wound up, in fact, making officers sometimes um, unusual, uh, unexpectedly vulnerable. And the reason for this was simply that the Human Rights Commission, unlike NGOs, NGOs don't have this power, but the Human Rights Commission did have the power to demand documents and demand a certain level of compliance from uh, any member of the Thai government, uh, any kind of official, including police officers. And so at times when they found that officers were not doing their jobs, not investigating crimes against Burmese people in Thailand, uh, they they actually had the potential to expose those officers publicly as having failed to do their jobs. And so if you're kind of a middle rank uh, officer, the, the kind who might be charged with investigating uh, a crime, say a crime of, of human trafficking, um, then, then you answer to people. You answer to people further up the chain. You you have a kind of patronage relation with them, and the way that you maintain good relations with your patrons uh, is, at very least, by not doing things that will be embarrassing for them, by not therefore losing face in such a way that it has this kind of contagious quality, so that your patrons will also lose face, uh, and. So the the lawyers were able to draw on that uh, and draw on the implicit threat that, uh, like, look, if you don't do what you're obligated to do under the Constitution for us as representatives of the Human Rights Commission, then we can create trouble for you. Of course, they would never say it in so many words because that would completely uh, undermine their ability to, to use that leverage. But the implication was there in such a way that they could get compliance from officers who had really been recalcitrant up until that point. Uh, and, and so 
that that was for me when that when I first um, witnessed this happening, it was sort of a revelation, and and it was, I realized like, oh yes, of course, they you only have the rights that you can claim, and the way that you can claim them has everything to do with uh, what will have force within your particular social environment. Concerns about face, concerns about patronage, these things have force within this social environment. And therefore, obviously, these lawyers are going to employ those sorts of levers to get their work done. Now, the the, um, counterexample to that, uh, not counter in terms of undermining the work of human rights lawyers, but but um, having a different directionality to the work of face work, was uh, the warden at Tekuapa Prison in Panga was uh, concerned about um, educating inmates about what their rights were. Now this is in southern Thailand, it's a it's part of the country that was very very badly hit by the tsunami, and um, so again, there there were many Burmese workers in that area who who were absolutely devastated by that, and who were um, who who had lost everything. They had lost their documentation. They had lost their homes. They had lost family, and. Uh, so I think not particularly surprisingly, more of them wound up circulating into the Thai legal system uh, because they just they they couldn't do things like produce their visas when asked by the police for their visas because they had been washed out to sea. So the the warden was um, concerned. He he thought that their uh, welfare depended in part upon understanding what their rights were. And so he made contact with the lawyers who were in the ones who I was following. And they came to educate the uh, the inmates about their rights under the constitution, especially with respect to human rights. But part of the reason that that was possible is because both the lawyers and the warden were uh, very attentive to giving one another the kind of deference that would allow them to maintain um, sort of uh, smooth, harmonious relations. That was a situation that could easily have been testy. You, you, I think it's not hard to imagine... Um, a human rights lawyer who has, uh, let's say, a more adversarial approach to the promotion of human rights, who who might have wound up um, looking on the warden not as a potential ally in the fight to promote human rights, but as a, a potential opponent who ha- would have to be brought to heel in some sense. And so through, through their kind of mutual sensitivities to... Uh, to, to maintaining one another's face, uh, this was a project that they could undertake and they were able to engage in this kind of educational work. Uh, they were, uh, and, and you could see from some of the questions that the, 
uh, migrants there, uh, not all of whom were, were Burmese, but overwhelmingly they were, by the kinds of questions they posed, that uh, some of this was really news to them, uh, that they had these rights. And so it, that did a kind of work for them to enhance their legal possibilities. But the continuation of the thought about um, uh, the role of Buddhism is that it was also doing this kind of uh, Buddha, Buddha Dasa inspired work of helping the warden and helping the officers there avoid doing things that would be demetorious for them, that would, that would give them bad karma. So curiously enough, then the, the kinds of interests that they have, that the, the lawyers that is had in terms of employing face work and, and being attentive to patron client relationships also had this complement of these ideas of helping people avoid things that will uh, impede their possibility of, of attaining nirvana. So there's a way, in other words, that um, the kinds of uh, social, prevalent social structures also wound up folding back into these kinds of egalitarian Buddhist impulses from the beginning. Right. And I, I think there are many anecdotes and, and vignettes uh, in, in the book where you um, uh, show very clearly how um, this is really playing out in, in the actual human rights work, in, in the, uh, the way that human rights embeds itself in, in, in political struggles and in uh, social interactions and in uh, human rights enterprises. Um, that really, these are the channels through which it flows, uh, right. because yeah. this is this is Thai society, and as um, as uh, uh, Thai officials and others are keen to um, uh, tell foreigners, you know, this is the Thai way, right? Um, yeah. Which which can mean one thing or the opposite, right? Uh, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. but yeah. It, it just means that you know they are um, that they are scripts and they are. Um, uh, hierarchies and there are social obligations that um, that cannot be uh, uh, brushed aside. Um, uh, finally, maybe a, a, a last question. We we can't go into the details of every aspect of the book, but um, you you mention in the book that um, this really was a a short window. Uh, that was yeah. brought to an end by uh, the coup against the taxing government. Um, we've seen another cycle since then. Um, what do you show in the in the book uh, about this relationship between this sort of macro political development and and the way that um, uh, human rights is being um, uh, developed and, and, and seized by actors in, in Thai society. Yeah. So the, um, the, the period after 2005, so, so after, uh, what I'm thinking of as sort of the, the closing of that window of the, the progressive moment 
in Thailand when the establishment of human rights was uniquely possible, where the um, uh, flourishing of human rights, uh, promotion and education was uh, enabled in, in a really unprecedented way. Um, that, that moment, yeah, I think that ended with the, uh, the coup in 2006 that, well, it might've ended actually a little before that it might've ended with the, uh, the, the Royalist yellow shirt protests that emerged in 2005 and that were, uh, extremely well organized and got, um, hundreds of thousands of people involved and and was successful in um, bringing important parts of the economy and the political machinery to to a grinding halt and that therefore set the table for a return to coups and uh, so so uh, since then we've we've more or less had, um, uh, military governance, so that even even the few flirtations with democratic elections that that did occur between two thousand six and the present, um, uh, that when those didn't go the way that the uh, that the royalist factions, uh, which includes the military, would have liked, uh, they they very quickly found pretexts to. Um, withdraw those elections or withdraw the the individuals or the parties that had won those elections and return um, more military friendly and royalist friendly uh, figures to to power uh, so um, that yeah I think that 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 marked the end of this moment where, uh, human rights could flourish in that way. And yet one of the things that has struck me as curious is, is that each successive constitution um, as increasingly anti-democratic as they have become has maintained the human rights commission. And so in one way it puzzles me because I, I think that um, having having a body within uh, or adjacent to the machinery of government that can investigate the government and can expose malfeasance um, and can do so quite publicly seems like it's not in the best interest of uh, autocratic or authoritarian regimes. And yet there it is. On the other hand, the Human Rights Commission has been dramatically diminished in its numbers uh, so that the, the commission itself is quite a bit smaller, uh, slightly over half the size that it was with the first uh, tranche of commissioners. Um, and given that the commissioner that the commission as a whole, when I was there, was already spread quite thin. It was, it was having trouble uh, keeping up with the work that it wanted to do. I can't imagine that a smaller commission would be more capable of doing that work than the larger one had been. And, and frankly, the the first tranche of 
um, commissioners was, was a real brain trust. It, it was, there were extraordinary people on that. And, and so um, there's been a shift, I think, toward commissioners who have more bureaucratic experience and have less of this kind of advocacy experience that, that people uh, honed as participants in NGOs. So that that's, I think, a further way that the commission has undergone something of a mission change. Uh, and one of the things that has been written into successive constitutions under the military governments is that part of the work of the commission is now to investigate allegations, international allegations of human rights abuses by the government uh, or by the military or, or what have you, um, so that they're they're employed in a kind of reputation control for the government that that was not part of the initial mandate of the commission. So uh, that that as well makes me. Um, think that the work of the commission has has been altered in a way that makes it much less recognizable to that initial um, sort of uh, egalitarian response that the idea that it's there in the service of Thai people in general rather than being there in the service of the government. Now, all of that said, um, they do still receive complaints. Uh, they still get hundreds of complaints a year that they that they continue to investigate. So, so it's not like they're just done and dusted. I, I don't want to give a false impression that they that the commission is now just a toady for the um, the the royalists. Uh, simply that that it has been. Um, significantly constrained in in what it does from that first moment. Right, and and perhaps one of the the lesson of your book is that you know what happened in the public sphere is not necessarily the whole story, right. and that you have these long um, standing trends and contentions and struggles that are under the surface and uh, at at certain political junctures, they come out and at some others, they retreat, but it doesn't mean that they have, uh, they have disappeared. Right. Um, Don, we've taken a lot of your time um, to talk about your book, uh, which um, we really recommend. Um, would you like to tell us what you are working on now? Uh, sure. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Uh, the, uh, so my current work, um, came out of a desire to start doing research, uh, before I had access to a sabbatical. And, uh, so that was research that I was going to do in the U S and in New York in particular. And so just as I was interested in this kind of marginal movement in Thailand, uh, around human rights that had become a force to be reckoned with. So my interest here is in this marginal group of uh, American atheists and how they are starting to gain 
some some level of prominence within American society, although a, a, a much smaller one than human rights in Thailand has. So what I'm investigating at the moment then is uh, American uh, atheists, uh, in particular those who are active in uh, atheist or secular or humanist organizations, uh, principally in New York, though someday when the pandemic passes and it's possible to go and do research face-to-face with people again, uh, it will become a, a properly ethnographic project as well. Well, that sounds like a, a great project. And as we know, human rights is um, something of a secular religion. Um, so I see, a, <laughs> I see a connection there. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, this was uh, really an interesting and I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, thank you. Thanks so much for this opportunity. I, I truly appreciate it. Thanks, Don, and, and take care. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.